0: Hey everybody. I'm gonna be reading a short story as a kind of bonus episode for Saint Patrick's Day. So I've chosen to read Araby by James Joyce. And along with this, I'm gonna put something up on the blog. I'm going to be putting a list of artists from Ireland that you can check out as a way to celebrate St. Patrick's Day and also read some really cool stuff. So put on some green, don't get pinched and Come on over and join me as we celebrate St. Patrick's Day for a second. So the story I'm going to read today is called Araby by James Joyce. So you probably have heard of James Joyce, you probably haven't, whether or not you've heard of him or not, he's an important writer in the 20th century in that he was highly experimental in his writing and changed a lot of the ways that people wrote novels and wrote uh, short stories as well. So I'll read a little bit about James Joyce for you just so that you can know who he is and what to expect from him. So. So James Joyce was born in 1882 and he died in 1941. He was an Irish novelist, short story writer, poet, teacher, and literary critic. He contributed to the modernist avant-garde movement and is regarded as one of the most influential and important writers of the 20th century. Joyce is best known for Ulysses, published in 1922, a landmark work in which the episodes of Homer's Odyssey are paralleled in a variety of literary styles, most famously Stream of Consciousness. Other well-known works are the short story collection Dubliners, of which Araby is a a story in there, and the novels A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, published in 1916, and Finnegan's Wake, published in 1939. His other writings include three books of poetry, a play, his published letters, and occasional journalism. Joyce was born in Dublin into a middle-class family. A brilliant student, he briefly attended the Christian Brothers run O'Connell School before, excelling at the Jesuit schools Clongowes and Belvedere, despite the chaotic family life imposed by his father's unpredictable finances. He went on to attend University College Dublin. In 1904, in his 20s, Joyce emigrated to continental Europe with his partner and later wife, Nora Barnacle. They lived in Trieste, Paris, and Zurich. Although most of his adult life was spent abroad, Joyce's fictional universe centers on Dublin and is populated largely by characters who closely resemble family members, enemies, and friends from his time there. Ulysses is in particular set with precision in the streets and alleyways of the city. Shortly after the publication of Ulysses, he elucidated this preoccupation somewhat saying, for myself, I always write about Dublin because if I go to the heart of Dublin, I can get to the heart of all of the cities of the world. In the particular is contained the universal so with james joyce he's a highly influential writer in the 20th century and as i mentioned in reading this uh section of the wikipedia page one of the one of the first things that joyce wrote was a collection of short stories called dubliners in 1914 so i'll give a little bit of background regarding dubliners just so that you're aware what to expect with this story so dubliners is a collection of 15 short stories by james joyce first published in 1914 They comprise a naturalistic depiction of Irish middle-class life in and around Dublin in the early years of the 20th century. The stories were written when Irish nationalism was at its peak, and a search for a national identity and purpose was raging. At a crossroads of history and culture, Ireland was jolted by various converging ideas and influences. They center on Joyce's idea of an epiphany, a moment where a character experiences a life-changing self-understanding or illumination, and the idea of paralysis where Joyce felt Irish nationalism stagnated cultural progression, placing Dublin at the heart of this regressive movement. Many of the characters in Dubliners later appear in minor roles in Joyce's novel, Ulysses. The initial stories in the collection are narrated by child protagonists, and as the stories continue, they deal with the lives and concerns of progressively older people. This is in line with Joyce's triptite division of the collection into childhood adolescence and maturity so that's a little bit regarding Dubliners and James Joyce honestly very fascinating to like I, I took a class my, in my last semester at BYU on modernist Irish or I guess like 20th it was a 20th century Irish writing the class that I took um, we, we looked at or we read um, Yates W.B. Yates we read like tons of Yeats poetry. For James Joyce, we read Dubliners, A portion of the Artist's Young Man, and sections of Ulysses and parts of Finnegan's Wake. And then we also read some Samuel Beckett, which uh, it was a great class. Was, honestly, really, it was so fascinating to read about Irish, uh, Irish nationalism and also Irish identity in the late 19th, early 20th and mid 20th century. And just how, how the cultural circumstances during those times influenced these writers. James Joyce, he's a, he's a fantastic writer and Araby is, is a, is one of, one of the earlier stories. Araby falls within the first third, which is in childhood. And so, yeah, so I I don't want to get too much away with the story, but I, yeah, um, I'm excited to read Araby by James Joyce. So here's Araby by James Joyce. "'North Richmond Street, being blind, "'was a quiet street except at the hour "'when the Christian Brothers' school set the boys free. "'An uninhabited house of two stories "'stood at the blind end, "'detached from its neighbors in a square ground. "'The other houses of the street, "'conscious of decent lives within them, "'gazed at one another with brown, imperturbable faces. "'The former tenant of our house, a priest, "'had died in the back drawing room.' Air musty from having been long enclosed hung in all the rooms and the waste room behind the kitchen was littered with old useless papers. Among these I found a few paper covered books, the pages of which were curled and damp. The Abbot by Walter Scott, the devout communicant and the memoirs of Vidoc. I liked the last best because its leaves were yellow. The wild garden behind the house contained a central apple tree and a few "'straggling bushes, under one of which "'I found the late tenant's rusty bicycle "'pump. He had a "'he'd been a very charitable priest. "'In his will, he had left all his "'money to institutions and the furniture of his "'house to his sister. "'When the short days of winter came, dusk fell "'before we had well eaten our dinners.' When we met in the street, the houses had grown somber. The space of sky above us was the color of ever-changing violet, and towards it the lamp of the street lifted their feeble lanterns. The cold air stung us, and we played till our bodies glowed. Our shouts echoed in the silent street. The career of our play brought us through the dark muddy lanes behind the houses. Where we ran the gauntlet of the rough tribes from the cottages, to the back doors of the dark dripping gardens where odors arose from the ash pits, to the dark odorous stables where a coachman smoothed and combed the horse, or shook music from the buckled harness. When we returned to the street, light from the kitchen windows had filled the areas. If my uncle was seen turning the corner, we hid in the shadow until we had seen him safely housed." Or if Mangan's sister came out on the doorstep to call her brother into his tea, we watched her from our shadow peer up and down the street. We waited to see whether she would remain or go in, and if she remained, we left our shadow and walked up to Mangan's steps resignedly. She was waiting for us, her figure defined by the light from the half-open door. Her brother always teased her before he opened. "'and I stood by the railings looking at her. "'Her dress swung as she moved her body, "'and the soft hope of her hair tossed from side to side. "'Every morning I lay on the floor "'in the front parlor watching her door. "'The blind was pulled down to within an inch of the sash "'so that I could not be seen. "'When she came out on the doorstep, my heart leaped. "'I ran to the hall, seized my books, and followed her.' I kept her brown figure always in my eye, and when we came near the point at which our ways diverged, I quickened my pace and passed her. This happened morning after morning. I had never spoken to her except for a few casual words, and yet her name was like a summons to all my foolish blood. Her image accompanied me in places the most hostile to romance. On Saturday evenings when my aunt went marketing, I had to go to carry some of the parcels. We walked through the flaring streets jostled by drunken men and bargaining women amid the curses of laborers. The shrill litanies of shop boys who stood on guard by the barrels of pig's cheeks, the nasal chanting of street singers who sang a come all you about O'Donovan Rosa or a ballad about the troubles in our native land. These noises converged in a single sensation of life for me. I imagined that I bore my chalice safely through a throng of foes. Her name sprang to my lips at moments in strange prayers. And praises which I myself did not understand. My eyes were often full of tears, I could not tell why, and at times a flood from my heart seemed to pour itself out into my bosom. I thought little of the future, I did not know whether I could ever speak to her or not, or if I spoke to her, how I could tell her of my confused adoration. But my body was like a harp, and her words and gestures were like fingers running upon the wires." One evening I went into the back drawing room in which the priest had died. It was a dark, rainy evening, and there was no sound in the house. Through one of the broken panes I heard the rain impinge upon the earth, the fine, incessant needles of water playing in the sodden beds. Some distant lamp or lighted window gleamed below me. I was thankful that I could see so little. All my senses seemed to desire, to veil themselves, and feeling that I was about to slip from them. I pressed the palms of my hands together until they trembled, murmuring, Oh, love, oh, love, many times. At last she spoke to me. When she addressed the first words to me, I was so confused that I did not know what to answer. She asked me, was I going to Araby? i forgot whether i answered yes or no it would be a splendid bazaar she said she would love to go and why can't you i asked while she spoke she turned a silver bracelet round and round her wrist she could not go she said because there would be a retreat that week in her convent her brother and two other boys were fighting for their caps and i was alone at the railings she held one of the spikes bowing her head towards me the light from the lamp opposite our door caught the white curve of her neck, lit up her hair that rested there, and falling, lit up the hand upon the railing. It fell over one side of her dress and caught the white border of a petticoat just visible as she stood at ease. It's well for you, she said. If I go, I said, I will bring you something. What innumerable follies laid waste my waking and sleeping thoughts after that evening. I wished to annihilate the tedious intervening days I chafed against the work of school. At night in my bedroom and by day in the classroom her image came between me and the page I strove to read. The syllables of the word Araby were called to me through the silence in which my soul luxuriated and cast an eastern enchantment over me. I asked for leave to go to the bazaar on Saturday night. My aunt was surprised and hoped it was not some Freemason affair. I answered few questions in class. I watched my master's face pass from amiability to sternness. He hoped I was not beginning to idle. I could not call my wandering thoughts together. I had hardly any patience with the serious work of life, which now that it stood between me and my desire seemed to me child's play. Ugly, monotonous child's play. On Saturday morning, I reminded my uncle that I wished to go to the bazaar in the evening. He was fussing at the hall stand, looking for the hat brush and answered me curtly. Yes, boy, I know. As he was in the hall, I could not go into the front parlor and lie at the window. I felt the house in bad humor and walked slowly towards the school. The air was pitilessly raw and already my heart misgave me. When I came home to dinner, my uncle had not yet been home. Still, it was early. I sat staring at the clock for some time. And when it's ticking began to irritate me, I left the room, I mounted the staircase and gained the upper part of the house. The high, cold, empty, gloomy rooms liberated me. And I went from room to room singing. From the front window, I saw my companions playing below in the street. Their cries reached me, weakened and indistinct. And leaning my forehead against the cool glass, I looked over at the dark house where she lived. I may have stood there for an hour, seeing nothing but the brown clad figure cast by my imagination, touched discreetly by the lamplight at the curved neck, at the hand upon the railings, and the border below the dress. When I came downstairs again, I found Mrs. Mercer sitting at the fire. She was an old, garrulous woman, a pawnbroker's widow, who collected used stamps for some pious purpose. I had to endure the gossip of the tea table. The meal was prolonged beyond an hour, and still my uncle did not come. Mrs. Mercer stood up to go. She was sorry she couldn't wait any longer, but it was after eight o'clock, and she did not like to be out late, as the night air was bad for her when she had gone i began to walk up and down the room clenching my fists my aunt said i'm afraid you may put off your bazaar for this night of our lord at nine o'clock i heard my uncle's latchkey in the hall door i heard him talking to himself and heard the hall stand rocking when it received the weight of his overcoat i could interpret these signs when he was midway through the dinner i asked him to give me the money to go to the bazaar he had forgotten the people are in bed after their first sleep by now he said I did not smile, my aunt said to him energetically, Can't you give him the money and let him go? You've kept him late enough as it is. My uncle said he was very sorry he had forgotten. He said he believed in the old saying, All work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. He asked me where I was going, and when I told him a second time, he asked me, did I know the Arabs' farewell to his steed? When I left the kitchen, he was about to recite the opening lines of the piece to my aunt. I held a florin tightly in my hand as I strode down Buckingham Street towards the station. The sight of the streets thronged with buyers and glaring with gas recalled to me the purpose of my journey. I took my seat in a third-class carriage of a deserted train. After an intolerable delay, the train moved out of the station slowly. It crept onward among ruinous houses and over the twinkling river. At Westland Row Station, a crowd of people pressed to the carriage doors. But the porters moved them back, saying that it was a special train for the bazaar. I remained alone in the bare carriage. In a few minutes, the train drew up beside an improvised wooden platform. I passed out onto the road and saw by the light dial of the clock that it was ten minutes to ten. In front of me was a large building which displayed the magical name. I could not find any sixpenny entrance, and fearing the bazaar would be closed, I passed in quickly through a turnstile. Handing a shilling to a wary-looking man, I found myself in a big hall, girded at half its height by a gallery. Nearly all the stalls were closed, and the greater part of the hall was in darkness. I recognized a silence like that which pervades a church after a service. I walked into the center of the bazaar timidly a few people were gathered about the stalls which were still open before a curtain over which the words cafe chantant were written in colored lamps two men were counting money on a solver i listened to the fall of the coins remembering with difficulty why i had come i went over to one of the stalls and examined porcelain vases and flowered tea sets at the door of the stall a young lady was talking and laughing with two young gentlemen i remarked their english accents and listened vaguely to their conversation oh i never did i never said such a thing oh but you did oh but i didn't didn't she say that yes i heard her. oh there's a fib observing me the young lady came over and asked me did i wish to buy anything the tone of her voice was not encouraging she seemed to have spoken to me out of a sense of duty i looked humbly at the great jars that stood like eastern guards at either side of the dark entrance to the hall and murmured no thank you The young lady changed the position of one of the bases and went back to the two young men. They began to talk of the same subject. Once or twice, the young lady glanced at me over her shoulder. I lingered before her stall, though I knew my stay was useless. To make my interest in her wares seem the more real. Then I turned away slowly and walked down the middle of the bazaar. I allowed the two pennies to fall against the sixpence in my pocket. I heard a voice call from one end of the gallery that the light was out. The upper part of the hall was now completely dark. Gazing up into the darkness, I saw myself as a creature driven and derided by vanity and my eyes burned with anguish and anger. There you have it, Araby by James Joyce. And as I mentioned, um, James Joyce, one of the big things that he, has, he does with his short stories that, is that has been influential throughout the 20th and into the 20th, 21st century is the epiphany at the end of the story. Like in this story, you know, he has this epiphany that he's like, ah, I was a creature, like derided by vanity. You know, I I spent all this money and spent all this time to get something for this girl that I really loved. But then I just, I realized it did not matter. And, you know, it it wasn't, this experience wasn't what I thought it would be. Like if you've ever seen a movie or read something, I'd say like watched a movie or watched a TV show where there's an epiphany at the end where it's like, oh the whole thing was a dream or the whole thing was this um you can thank james joyce and also ambrose Bierce as two uh, practitioners of the epiphany at the end of a story so i hope you enjoy the story if not that's cool whatever you're not dead to me but you might be anyway i'll see you later